Welcome to Prima's 2020 podcast series. My name is Shonda Raglan. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Sarah Schmitz will discuss navigating class action lawsuits. Sarah Schmitz is the claims manager at Intact Insurance Public Entities. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So to start, what is a class action lawsuit? A class action lawsuit is a lawsuit that's brought by one or more people, and they're kind of special plaintiffs. They're called class representatives. They bring the lawsuit on behalf of themselves, but really on behalf of an entire group of people who have the same injury. These uh, class representatives stand in the shoes of the class members, and all members of the class are treated as a single plaintiff. That means they get the same settlement. Now, the class representatives might get a little bit more compensation, but individual people are not involved in the litigation process, even though they're a member of the class. They're kind of just along for the ride. An example of this is you may have received a card in the mail saying you are part of a class action, perhaps the target data breach. And what you do is you fill out the postcard, you send it in, and if the suit settles or it goes to trial, you might get a check or a coupon at the end. But that's really your involvement as a class member in a class action lawsuit. It starts out just like a regular lawsuit. Summons is served, complaints are filed, an answer is also filed. But you'll recognize it when you see it because in the caption, it typically lists the class representative plaintiff and also usually includes a phrase such as, and those similarly situated after the plaintiff's names. There will also probably be some language in the body of the complaint that indicates that the lawyers are trying to seek class certification and who those class members might be. For example, in a Fair Labor Standards Act lawsuit, you might see a paragraph in the lawsuit that indicates that it includes firefighters who have worked for the employer between certain dates. People have a tendency to classify all cases involving many plaintiffs as class actions, but there are distinctions. Think of it like a pyramid divided into three parts with class actions on the very top and the smallest part. Class action lawsuits are the most difficult to get because they are—they have a lot of requirements, procedural requirements. A small number of suits actually become what I'll call real class action. Again, the perfect example is probably that Fair Labor Standards Act false overtime claims. If you work your way down the pyramid, you've got a bigger section in the pyramid, and I would call those mass tort claims. I like to call them class action rejects because they are very similar to class actions, but they don't meet all the procedural requirements that class actions do. So mass tort claims are typically ones that have a lot of people injured by the same product. Think of a faulty part in a car that caused fires in a, in a vehicle. But all the people who were injured have different injuries. There may be death. There may be severe burns. Other people might just have property damage. So they're related but different enough that they can't be a class action lawsuit because the injuries are so divergent. Examples would include the Dachon Shield litigation with IUDs back in the 1970s. The injuries could be anything from pelvic inflammation disease to a loss of fertility to even death. And either class actions or mass tort claims can be filed in state or federal court. And they can also be what's called multi-district litigations. That's MDL for short. What this means is that there are multiple class actions or multiple mass tort complaints that are filed in different federal courts in different areas or in different states or in different courts within one state. 
people in these cases have sustained are injured by the same product in the same way, but their suits are not combined together because they have different injuries, but their lawsuits are in different jurisdictions. For example, one MDL is currently pending in the Northern District of Ohio, and it consists of over 1,900 opioid-related cases, and this is a case that's actually brought by states, cities, and counties, and other local entities against opioid manufacturers and distributors. And what happens in one of these MDLs is that for discovery and certain rulings, they have one federal judge who oversees the litigation. There is a select group of attorneys who are appointed to pursue discovery on behalf of all injured defendants and a group of plaintiff attorneys who are referred to as plaintiff steering committee. And then last, we're going to go back to the pyramid. So you've got class actions at the top, you've got mass tort claims in the middle, and then at the very bottom in the biggest portion are what we typically deal with. These are single or just a couple multi-plaintiff lawsuits. These are the ones we see all the time. These are your slip and falls, your car accidents, your law enforcement liability claims. And that's kind of how I would divide the different types of lawsuits out there. What is the difference between a class action and a traditional lawsuit? One of the biggest differences, aside from the obvious that there are more plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit, is the procedural process. And I kind of alluded to that before. The biggest procedural difference is almost an extra phase called the class certification process. So in addition to doing discovery about liability and about damages, you'll need to do discovery on the class certification portion. Now, there's certain requirements that need to be met for a lawsuit to be a true class action, and that's the very tip of the pyramid I talked about. And you can look in the civil procedure rules 23A and 23B. So there are four components in order to be a true class action. The first is numerosity. That means the class of people who are injured is so numerous that joinder of all the members or listing them all on the pleadings is impractical. This usually means that there are more than 40 plaintiffs in order to hit this numerosity requirement. The second requirement for a class action is typicality. That means that the claims and defenses of the representative parties, that those are the class representatives, are typical of the claims or defenses of the class. That means the person who is chosen as the class representative isn't an outlier. Their injuries and what happened to them is very similar to what happened to others in the class like the data breach, you know, what what happened, their credit card was stolen and they ended up with charges on their credit card that they did not make. The third requirement is adequacy. That means the representative party will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. Class representatives can't have a conflict of interest with the members that they're representing. And then the fourth requirement is, I said for last, because to me it is the key to class certification, and that's commonality. And what that means is that the questions of law or fact are common to the class. Now, this requirement's gotten a lot stricter, especially after a 2011 ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. It requires that the class members have suffered the same injury, not that just the same product injured them. And this is kind of where the differentiation between true class actions and mass tort litigation comes into play. It's usually in this commonality requirement. It's become harder to meet this requirement after that case. So after these, if these requirements have been met, then class certification, discovery, and motions. So if you've got a class certification, the discovery with the class certification and the motions associated with that, the filing of briefs, et cetera, as to whether the class should be certified or not, go first in the litigation. 
the court then rules if the requirements are met for class certification. It's an issue of law, not fact, so it's a decision made by the judge, much like a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. If the judge grants the class certification, the case proceeds and liability and damages discovery occurs much like in a single plaintiff lawsuit, although usually much more costly and much more expensive. However, I've recently been involved in some lawsuits where the process has been reversed either by agreement of the parties or by the court. One particular type of case where this may occur is where qualified immunity is a defense to a public entity. The public entity is, then has the right to be free from suit, and that is an important right to our public entities. And the, we've been successful in convincing judges that that issue should be first and foremost because there's no point in having the expense and the discovery for a class certification only to then turn and find out that qualified immunity applies and that the suit cannot proceed against the public entity. And once something is classified as a class action, it can be declassified. You've got generally, you know, a couple of options if you disagree with the court's ruling on class certification. Sometimes you can appeal the decision immediately. I had this happen in a state court case recently. We appealed the certification to the Court of Appeals for the state. They agreed with us and they remanded the case back. Another option is sometimes the judge who actually certifies that case can later decertify it. Class certification is granted initially, and then after discovery, the defendant can file a motion to decertify the class at almost like a motion for summary judgment stage. Discovery can show that the individual issues predominated over common issues. Thus, we're going back to that most important issue in requirement in class actions, the commonality of interest was not met. And then just a little bit about class representatives and what's in it for them. Usually they're one of the first few people or that has the injury and has reached out to counsel, class counsel for the case. If the case settles, the lead plaintiff or class representatives usually will get a larger percentage of any potential settlement than the other class members, but they are also involved heavily in the case much the same way a single plaintiff would be involved in this lawsuit. They'll likely be deposed, they'll be involved in settlement negotiations, and be consulting with the attorneys on a regular basis. As for settlement, remember, in a, class, in a true class action, everyone else does get the same settlement who's in the class. There are opt-out procedures, but that's almost an entire new and different podcast to go into the intricacies of opt-out provisions. In contrast, the mass tort lawsuit everyone will probably end up with a different settlement because we're really focusing on the individual injuries to the person. So what type of lawsuits against public entities do you see that are class actions? The typical lawsuits I see that are either class actions or maybe they don't meet the requirements and they end up being mass tort lawsuits are ones that involve uh, like water quality, red light cameras, debtor prisons, or giving the authority to another entity, discrimination, prisoner conditions, and overcrowding. ICE detainee holdings by sheriff, Fair Labor Standard Act claims, failure to pay overtime, and miscalculation of exempt versus non-exempt positions. One other area I want to hit on is on the class action front that I think stands out is that there's a particular type of class action that's brought by the DOJ, the Department of Justice, or the EEOC, that's the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, on discrimination basis. I've had experience with these types of claims as well, and they do kind of stand out. These are lawsuits that are not brought by private attorneys, but by the U.S. government, and they present their own challenges in defending. One of the most challenging claims that can be brought against an entity is one involving disparate impact to discrimination. 
And what that means, that's not direct discrimination, which most people would think about, but it's essentially there's a policy or a procedure that on its face does not appear discriminatory. I'll use, for example, a maybe a police testing that requires individuals to do 15 push-ups or a grammar portion of a police test that requires 80% percentage passage rate. It's applied evenly to everyone who takes the test. However, it has a disparate impact on a protected group. As a result, the entity ends up hiring less of that protected group as a result of the bias in the testing itself. Those are some ones to be on the lookout for. And if you go to the DOJ or the EEOC webpage, you can see the trends that and the type of things that they're looking for with respect to private businesses or public entities. But those are kind of different. That's a different process than a a traditional lawsuit. What's the most challenging aspect of a class action lawsuit from the insurer, defense counsel, and carrier's perspective? I think there's probably three issues that stand out to me on the defense side. The first and foremost is defeating the class certification, which in my mind should be the primary objective when a case comes in. If there's no class action, your settlement in the case is completely different. For example, if you've got a case where the damages to the individual are $1,000, you know, that's a that's a manageable case. But if you have a hundred people who have that same or similar injury and you have to pay them each a thousand dollars, suddenly you take a thousand dollar case and it becomes a hundred thousand dollar case. And you can look at how that plays out when your class the number of class members increase. So if there's no class, there's a whole different view of the case just be in terms of settlement and and the numbers. So I think that's the primary thing is to focus on the class certification and to evaluate it early to determine whether class certification is really an option or it will be easy to defeat because that'll make a huge difference in the case. I think the second thing to be on the lookout for is defense costs and other costs. Class actions are more expensive than traditional lawsuits. You've got an extra phase of the litigation the class certification. So that's another whole phase of discovery and motions that are not present in traditional single plaintiff lawsuits. You've got the increased costs, obviously, from just any settlement because there's more people involved. You've also got more e-discovery issues, and you'll probably need more e-discovery vendors, and there's probably more documents involved because of the number of people involved as well. And trying to limit that class to a certain time period. So you're going to be going back in time and getting a lot of records. Also, the use of experts, obviously that's going to be more expensive than in a traditional suit as well, just because of the sheer volume of individuals that you're looking for. And then last, I would say that the class action or mass tort lawsuits is just more complicated from a litigation management front. You might have cost-sharing agreements if there's a latent injury. If you look at your general liability policy, there are occurrence policies, and there may be multiple carriers who are on the risk when there is a latent or long-term exposure injury involved. Think of your asbestos litigation. Litigation may be protracted. It may take longer because of the sheer number and volume, thus increasing defense costs. You might have more counsel involved. If you've got multi-district litigation, you might have local and national counsel, so that's an increase in cost as well. But it does make for just um, a more complicated lawsuit. 
One of the insureds that I worked with kind of gave this example, and I think this gives you an idea of how how much it impacts an insured who's who's also dealing with a class action lawsuit. The one I was involved with with this insured reported to me afterward that they had one person whose full-time job for an entire year was simply getting documents for the litigation and coordinating those requests, especially during the class certification process. Others had to step up and take on that person's job responsibility for that entire year. The insured had outside counsel who was defending them and working hard on getting a settlement and was involved with trying to defend the case, but there was still a lot of internal coordination and responsibilities that fell on the insured as well with gathering the information and those numbers. So what do you need to do differently or in addition as a result of a class action lawsuit? I probably have um, four pieces of advice that I've learned from the, the class actions that I've worked with in my 12 years working in claims and previously as an attorney. First of all, I would say report it immediately. First, identify it and report it up the chain of command when it's received. If you're an insured, this applies to you. If you're an adjuster, this applies to you. If you're in a broker, this applies to you as well. Take it seriously if they're attempting class certification and identify it as such and make sure that everyone's aware that there is a potential that they're at least going to try and make this a class action. If you have a self-insured retention, be sure to be talking with your broker about whether that triggers a reporting obligation at that point. And, you know, if you're only in a notice of tort stage or a demand letter stage or you've gotten wind that a suit might be filed, you know, internally talk to your broker, you know, whether you want to let your carrier know at that time. Because the earlier you're more aware of this, the earlier you can prepare and get documents in order because it can get rolling really quickly. So the earlier identification, the better. Second, I'd say if class certification is granted, make sure you report it again. This raises the stakes on the litigation just by the sheer number of people involved. You know, you most of your cases, you know, have an average amount that they're settled for or they're closed. This becomes much more difficult when the class certification has been granted. And it changes the whole aspect and the costs involved with the case. So that would be my second recommendation is to make sure everyone is aware that class certification was granted. And this goes for brokers, those at the carrier, and insureds. The third recommendation I have or things you should do differently is make sure you're looking to see if there's anyone else who's potentially liable or has a duty to defend or indemnify you in the suit. As a claims handler, I'm always looking for these opportunities as well to provide additional protection to our insurers. For example, like in a red light class action, you should be obtaining copies of the contracts that the insured had with any vendors that might be involved or tangentially involved and looking to see if there's indemnification or defense language. You'll want to be putting not only that that vendor on notice, but also the vendor's carrier on notice. There's a difference between being an additional insured on someone's policy and just being able to tender to them and them providing you with a defense through the contract provision in the policy. So you want to know the difference. You want to know what the whether they would provide a defense counsel for you or whether your own insurance carrier needs to provide that defense um, or indemnification. So that's definitely looking out there for any options for tender of the defense and indemnification. And last, I would say get the right defense counsel on it early. 
work in partnership with your carrier and your broker. A lot of your carriers have broader resources than most individual insureds or public entities would and can help you find the right counsel even if it's in an early stage. You know, be partners with them. A lot of times we can also, we've got an idea of what's going on in other areas and we might be able to locate a counsel that has particular experience in this area or we've seen success on in these types of suits with this particular firm. So definitely, you know, get out ahead of it early and work in partnership with your carrier and your broker rather than then delaying and then having to do the catch up immediately when the suit's been filed. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.